Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. So I'd like to offer some reflections tonight on an aspect of this practice of right speech and then uh, then we'll have some time for uh, walking or other movement practice on your own and then we'll come back together for some chanting and uh, closing meditation together that's kind of the flow for the evening and to begin with a quote from the Dhammapada Irrigators channel water. Fletchers straighten arrows. Carpenters fashion wood. The wise train themselves. So one of the ways we can understand this whole path that uh, has come down to us through the ages is as a kind of craft, a craft of the heart and the mind. So as you listen tonight, I invite you to continue practicing this craft Seeing if you can bring a sense of embodied presence to your listening. Can you stay aware of your own experience as you hear the words and take in the meaning? I'd like to talk about a few... a few key things in this, this craft, specifically as it relates to speech. The practice of wise speech really includes all of the other factors on the Eightfold Path because we, we can't work with speech without also working with the heart and the mind and our thoughts. And in the same way, we can't work with the rest of the Eightfold Path without including our speech because it's such a central part of our lives. <clears throat> so to develop right speech and to... Uh, discard unhelpful speech. The Buddha mentions three specific aspects of the Eightfold Path as being really important. First, he mentions our view, how we're looking at things, which is about wisdom. And this is the wisdom to know what's helpful from what's not. So cultivating the discernment to actually tell the difference between what to say and what not to say what is actually true, useful, kind, and timely. So having the appropriate view, and developing wisdom about what to say and what not to say is necessary. Sometimes we know, 
and it still comes out. <laughs> you know, oh, I probably shouldn't say this, and then the words come out. So this is where the second factor that he mentions comes into play, which is right effort. This is the effort to actually let go of unhelpful speech and enter right speech, really cultivate it. So letting go of the things that we know aren't helpful, that aren't help, that aren't true, uh, that aren't kind, and actually having the strength, the restraint to withstand the pressure or the push to say something in the moment. And we've already started developing this a little bit with the pausing practice, just practicing just being able to let go in a moment. So having, having the energy and the effort to act appropriately on the wisdom that we have, and when we don't, to be able to study that and learn from it, learn from our mistakes. And then the third factor he mentions is mindfulness. So bearing all of this in mind, remembering, keeping uh, present in our awareness the wisdom, the view that we have, <clears throat> and the effort to uh, uh, bring it to bear. Mindfulness in relation to speech as the ability to keep paying attention. Even being aware, am I speaking now? One of the most basic mindfulness practices for speech is just being aware when we're actually speaking which a lot of the time we're not. Why am I speaking? Is this worth saying? Is this the right time or the best way to say it? So that we bring our mindfulness to bear on these questions, cultivating a, an awareness and a sensitivity to our speech. <clears throat> Suzuki Roshi uh, called mindfulness he characterized it as a soft readiness. A soft readiness. So that sense of readiness points to the fact that we don't really know what's going to happen in the next moment. Mindfulness has this uh, recognition of the uncertainty of experience and a kind of poise, an ability to uh, respond in the moment. And this, this, uh, this is connected to the softness. It's, uh, mindfulness isn't fixed or rigid. We're not uh, locked into past ideas or expectations of how things should be. But we're alert, attuned to what's happening. So we've talked a little bit about curiosity as an aspect of mindfulness and of intention, this um, interest in experience, which requires a certain kind of humility, a willingness to recognize what we don't know. To really understand something, we have to be willing to not know. And we have to be patient, to be willing to stay with something to keep paying attention.
the more we keep paying attention with mindfulness, the more wisdom grows, the more we start to see things clearly and to see the difference between our actual experience of what's happening and the stories that we tell ourselves about it. The, what we add that's extra, our interpretations or our reactions. So for example, some of the words we were looking at this afternoon, stories like, I feel attacked or betrayed I feel ignored. These interpretations that we overlay onto experience versus just what's happening. And then as we pay attention, we start to have the wisdom to know what's helpful, which stories are actually helpful, and which ones just lead to more confusion or entanglement or reactivity. <clears throat> So wisdom, effort, mindfulness. Tonight, mostly I want to talk about intention. I want to keep exploring this factor we were looking at today of where we're coming from inside, the quality of our heart, which has a direct effect on our relationships, on our speech, and on the way that we experience life. There's a story of a Zen monk and poet named Ryokan, lived in the uh, 1800s, a wandering monk, hermit, who wrote some very beautiful poetry. And the story goes that uh, his family, uh, some, of his, some of his extended family, um, their, uh, their son was... Um, getting into a lot of trouble. I'm not sure what that looked like in medieval Japan. <laughs> but he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't following the, uh, <laughs> the requests of the family and sort of the um, duties and responsibilities and so forth that they were hoping for. And they had tried everything um, to, to get through to him. And they, they couldn't. And so they, they got a message to Ryokan and asked him to, asked him to come and spend some time at the, at, the, at the house and see if he could talk to the, um, their, their son. So Ryokan came for a few days, as the story goes, <clears throat> and spent time at the house and didn't say anything to the child, didn't know what to say didn't know how to really, how to connect, but had a lot of compassion, a lot of care for this, uh, this, this child um, who, was, who was causing so much pain to the family and, and it sounded like uh, struggling a lot in his own life. And the family was very, you know, disturbed that he wasn't actually doing anything or saying anything. They had invited him to come and this, here's this problem and but he just uh, just spent time and observed, all the while with care in his heart. And then the very last day when he was leaving, he was standing on the front porch, 
and uh, the the son in the family, I think it might have been his nephew, I'm not sure, um, was uh, helping to put on his sandals. The child's kneeling down on the floor, putting on the sandals. And Ryo Khan, it said, was so moved by compassion that he started crying. And the, 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 this young man just felt the tears of his relative landing on his, on his neck. And then Ryo Khan left, and apparently this had a profound effect on, on the child. Feeling the compassion and the care without any words, but just that genuineness, the expression of his care. So where we're coming from can be very powerful, and it's not always expressed in words. One of the key insights in this practice and one of the, the main kind of uh, principles for the reason it works, the entire contemplative path, is that our mind and our heart can be shaped, can be trained. As the Buddha said, the wise train themselves, this craft of the heart-mind. So the way our minds work is that they're malleable. They can be shaped. They're plastic. Another quote from the Buddha who said, whatever the mind frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become its inclination. And modern neuroscience has been able to demonstrate this, to actually show the truth of this reality, of what's known today as neuroplasticity, that the very shape of the mind can change based on what we do with it. Whatever you frequently think and ponder upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. So it's like our mind and heart are um, a really a, a field that's been tilled it's very rich, fertile soil. And whatever seeds you throw there will take root and grow. So the question is, what are we growing in this heart and mind? What are we cultivating? How are we shaping the heart and the mind? Speech practice is a very powerful vehicle for crafting our hearts and minds for the simple reason that there is a reciprocal relationship between the faculty of thought and speech and the mind and the heart. So when you think of a craft, like playing an instrument or uh, um, material arts, ceramics or pottery or carving or weaving, The, the medium that you're working in is what's shaped. With the craft of the heart, the shaper and the shaping reinforce each other. 
So as we work on the medium, it transforms us. It's, it's this uh, symbiotic relationship between the two. And so our heart's intentions, the impulses and inclinations of our heart, form our words, our speech, and our, th our thought, and our speech. And in the same way, the more we think or speak in certain ways, that reinforces those patterns and inclinations in our heart. So when we transform our speech, when we transform our thoughts, that starts to transform our heart. When we transform our heart, that starts to transform our thoughts and our speech, and they support each other. They go like that. So what's the default? What's, what's our habit? Again, we've, we've looked at this a little bit. And our, our, one of our habits is this reactive tendency in the mind to try to control or manipulate or resist experience. And the Buddha described this with a very, um, a very vivid analogy. Many of you have, have heard this before, that he talked about um, being alive and experiencing difficult things is like getting shot with an arrow. And no one escapes this. Anyone who is, who is born experiences difficult and unpleasant things in life, and that's like getting shot with an arrow. But he said the difference between somebody who's on this path and really understands and practices it with someone who is not on this path, who doesn't understand or practice it, is that one who hasn't practiced, when they get hit with that arrow of difficulty in life, they shoot a second arrow, lamenting, reacting. Why is this happening? This shouldn't happen. Why me? How come this happened? How do I get away from this? And that reactivity, that resistance, that attempt to control or manipulate or judge or blame or attack or defend against experience, that habitual reactivity in the heart is painful. It's an extra layer of pain. One who's practiced and understood the teachings when difficulty arises, it's just that. It's just that much. We don't add that extra layer of reactivity, of resistance, of blame, of should or shouldn't or expectation. One of my first meditation teachers, a Sri Lankan man by the name of Godwin, was fond of saying, Anytime you're suffering, look and see if there isn't some expectation about how things should be. That expectation is a kind of reactivity. It's a kind of supposition that then uh, resists the way things actually are. So this is, this is our conditioning, this is our habit. Pleasant things come, we grab onto them. Unpleasant things come, we recoil or push away from them. We react. And the, the practice of meditation and the cultivation of wise speech is a transformation of this default unconscious reactivity 
to a more balanced awareness, this intention to understand, this quality of mindfulness, which is a, a, a caring curiosity, a warm interest in experience. So in the Eightfold Path, this shows up as right intention. Kind of right aim for our life. The Buddha po pointed to three different inclinations that are useful to ali align our hearts with in this craft, this cultivation of awareness, this cultivation that leads to uh, a sense of peace and well-being in the heart. The first was kindness. The second is compassion, not causing harm. And the third is renunciation, or simplicity, or letting go. And so we see these in the ethical guidelines on speech, coming from a, coming from a, a kind heart, connected to the sense of what's helpful, that sense of compassion, wanting to contribute. Another area that the that uh, intention shows up in the practice, the practice of meditation and this path in general, is uh, the cultivation of uh, these qualities of heart known as the Brahma Viharas, which was the chant that we did this morning. This chant of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. So what I want to focus on this evening is how these qualities of the heart, these intentions, um, what they are, and, and how they can support our practice of right speech, and how, they can, how we can uh, rely on them in our relationships. So these, these four qualities are understood in the Buddhist tradition as... Um, sublime sublime aspects of the of uh, the human being it's uh, sublime mind states and there the the word itself vihara means a, a home or a resting place so the understanding is that these are like um, our best home a place where we can abide and rest our in, our attention so that, that same teacher I mentioned, Godwin, um, he used to say, learn to be your own best friend. That was one of his ways of talking about the practice, is learning to be our own best friend. When we can bring these qualities of kindness, compassion, celebra celebration or joy and balance to ourselves, to our own experience as a best friend, then we're able to bring those to others. And the more we're able to bring them to others in our life, the more we're able to offer them to ourselves. Each of these qualities is based on a certain fundamental capacity of the human heart. The word in the Pali for this is anukampa. And anu means with, and kampa, kampati means to tremble 
So anukampa is the, the, the capacity of the heart to tremble with. So like the resonant capacity of the heart. So if you think of a stringed instrument and you think of like plucking one string, the other strings that have a harmonic will resonate with that string. So this resonant capacity of the heart, which is sometimes called empathy, that we can feel with the emotional experience, the felt experience of another. And one interpretation of the Brahma Viharas is that there are different facets of this basic capacity we have at, for empathy, this basic resonant capacity of the heart. And the general orientation of this empathic capacity when nothing particular is happening is goodwill, kindness. May you be well. May all be well. When this resonant empathic capacity of the heart meets suffering or difficulty, the response is compassion. Are you okay? How can I help? I'm here. What do you need? When this resonant empathic capacity of the heart meets happiness and success, its response is to rejoice, to celebrate. Yay, I'm so happy. That's great. Congratulations. We join with the happiness of another. And when this resonant empathic capacity of the heart meets the inevitable challenges of life, the ups and the downs, the gain and the loss, the joys and the sorrows, it stays balanced. And this is called equanimity, this uh, equilibrium in the heart and the mind. So I want to talk a little bit about each of these qualities and how we can, how they relate to speech and relationship, and then offer um, two questions that you can use as a mindfulness practice to uh, to cultivate these intentions in your life, to shape your heart and your words. So the first of these qualities, as many of you probably know, is called metta, loving kindness. It's related to the word for friend. So it's this quality of friendship, of warmth or care. The Dalai Lama calls loving-kindness basic human warmth. One of the great strengths of metta, of kindness, is that it's, it's rooted in the truth that our lives are all connected. Sharon Salzberg talks about one of, the, one of the words she likes to use to translate metta is connection, a profound sense of connection, that our lives have something to do with one another, that we're not as separate as we seem. So just for a moment, even right now, maybe reflect on all of the people 
in your life that have in some way influenced your being here on this weekend retreat. Teachers, friends, family, people you haven't met, a book that you read, a talk that you listened to, someone who inspired you, maybe even someone who you've had difficulty with or that brought pain, that inspired you to look more deeply into your life and seek transformation. And recognizing that all of those people are connected to our being here tonight. The Dalai Lama said, if we were aware that we all contain love within us, and that we can foster and develop it, we would certainly give it far more attention than we do. So just, just consider for a moment, what would it be like to be connected to a sense of goodwill and kindness towards yourself, towards your own thoughts and mind, towards others in life? What would it be like to have kindness and goodwill as a resource, as a foundation for how you meet experience, as a resource or as a foundation for how you communicate? for how we listen. So this is the possibility when working with the craft of the heart, when taking on, uh, when including speech within our spiritual or contemplative practice. And the reason this is possible is that because kindness, goodwill, these aren't just feelings. Feelings are ephemeral. They're not in our control. None of us can feel, can feel love or kindness on command. Well, maybe if you've practiced metta a lot, you can. But the untrained mind can't do that. But rather, kindness, goodwill, love, friendliness, it's, this is a capacity it's a skill that can be cultivated. It's an intention, it's an orientation to experience rather than a feeling. And we all have this capacity inside us and we can grow it, we can develop and cultivate it. We have this possibility of strengthening a sincere, genuine wish for our own well-being and for the well-being of others. Not only can we strengthen it, but we can teach ourselves to rest there, to abide in this intention of goodwill. 
we can regard life through eyes of kindness and friendship. So this is a very powerful quality for our speech and listening. To be able to come not only from mindfulness, but from kindness, from care. And kindness can look a lot of different ways. Doesn't mean being nice. Kindness can be the generosity of telling someone in a very gentle way at the right time something that's difficult to hear. And one, one colleague of mine, another meditation teacher, we were at an event and um, I, uh, I, I said something, uh, came forward and, and spoke first in a context uh, in a way that was uh, clearly based on my, my own male, male privilege just that I sort of assumed that I would, I would speak first. And she very, you know, gently, lovingly later called me up and said, hey, you know, I know that you care about these things, so I just wanted to offer some feedback. And I was so grateful. I said, yeah, you're right. Wow, I didn't see that. Thank you. Great act of generosity and love, kindness to share that with me. Doesn't mean we need to like the other person. Kindness means not harboring ill will. One of the ways it's talked about, and this is our one of the things we chanted in the morning, a heart that's without hostility and without ill will. So the absence of ill will and hostility. So where are we coming from? This is the first question that we can practice with to cultivate these intentions, is just beginning to bring some awareness, some inquiry to our communications, our conversations, and consider, where am I coming from? Am I, am I coming from a place of kindness and goodwill towards myself, towards others, towards life? So the next quality is compassion. And this is that willingness to be with that which is difficult. The willingness to be with suffering and to see if we can help. Rather than our tendency to, to turn away, to resist, to avoid suffering, to blame ourselves or others, to become ashamed or embarrassed, or to become overwhelmed or flooded by suffering, to not be broken or burdened by difficulty, but instead to have the strength to stay with it, to face it with, with, um, with a spirit of tenderness. And I'm talking about Godwin a lot tonight. It's, so one of my one of my first experiences with compassion in this practice that um, kind of stunned me when uh, my first trip to India when I first first started meditating I was nineteen and uh, when when we arrived in in Delhi and. Uh, total culture shock, really like, what am I doing here? 
in India, and um, I had a lot of homesickness. In particular, I was very, very homesick for uh, the woman I had been dating at the time. Missed her a lot, and um, was having a difficult time with that. And so one of the instructors on the program suggested that I go and talk to the meditation teachers. I said, why don't you go talk to Godwin? See, you know, just, just tell him what's happening. And uh, so I shared with him how, you know, how much I missed her and how hard it was. And, um, and, and he just kind of listened and sort of very quietly, you know, sort of nodding and said, oh, oh, oh. And then he asked me, he said, he said, where does it hurt? And I said, here. And then I felt this pain in my chest, this, this aching, this kind of, uh, you know, very tender heartbreak. And some tears welled up in kind of a wave of pain. And he was looking at me and just kind of, you know, there with me. And, and then it passed. And then I felt okay. And in the mo and at that at that time, I thought, "Whoa, this is amazing! This is like magic. He just did something." It was his compassion, inviting me, having the strength to be present with my suffering, rather than trying to fix it or change it or analyze it, but just that capacity to say, "Where does it hurt?" and then to be with me in that, with tenderness, that allowed me to feel it and for it to, uh, to kind of pass as is its nature. There's a powerful story about um, a young African-American woman named Keisha Thomas. This is uh, over 20 years ago now. She's, she's not so young now. <laughs> uh, she was 18 at the time, and there was um, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in 1996, there was a KKK rally and a counter-demonstration. So, uh, unfortunately, very familiar for the times that we're living in. And um, one, of the, uh, one of the Ku Klux Klan demonstrators somehow ended up on the wrong side of the fence, in the middle of the crowd of the people protesting against the KKK rally. And as soon as they discovered that he was with the, the Ku Klux Klan, people started uh, getting very violent and aggressive and started to beat him. And this young African-American woman um, jumped in front of them and protected him with her body. She said later, she said, nobody deserves to be hurt. Several months later, she, she describes that she was in a coffee shop in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and a young man came up to her and thanked her for what she did. And she asked him, why? Why are you thanking me? And he said, that man was my father. Well, this is the strength of compassion that recognizes our deep connection. Each person is someone's brother, sister, mother, father, daughter, or son. No one deserves to be hurt. 
despite their views or their opinions. So this, this quality of compassion also can show up in small ways. I was in the staff dining room a few years ago uh, talking with a, a colleague about the romantic relationship that had ended in a very kind of dramatic and painful way as these things go sometimes. And there was this, this was a very short, sweet response, just, I'm so sorry that happened. Just a few words. And it just felt so lovely to just be acknowledged. You know, to just be acknowledged. So where are we coming from when we relate? When, when we're faced with suffering, our own or someone else's, do we try to wriggle out of it or change it or analyze it or explain it or pretend that it's not happening? Do we grow uncomfortable? Or can we be there with the suffering, with a sense of care and tenderness and a willingness like Godwin was willing to just say, where does it hurt? Oh, that's painful to just be right there with it. The next of these qualities is sympathetic joy, mudita in Nepali, joy or gladness. Now this is that quality of celebration, of rejoicing in the happiness of another. One of the things that's beautiful about this quality of joyful of joy, sometimes called appreciative joy, is that it can only arise in the absence of craving. If we want something, if we want what the other person has, if we're if we're sort of craving that, then we can't enjoy it with them. We can't celebrate with them. The Dalai Lama said, when you, t when you count other people's happiness as your own, when you have this quality of sympathetic joy, your chances for happiness go up seven billion to one. <laughs> Enlightened self-interest, it's known as. And so, you know, our response, what's our usual response when someone else, when things are going well for someone else, right? Oh, that's great, I'm so happy for you. You know, that sense of envy or something inside shrinks, like, like happiness and success is this, this, limited, enti um, uh, um, this limited thing. And if someone else gets some, there won't be enough for me. And how does it feel when, uh, when something happens for you? Some, something good happens or you're doing well and someone genuinely joins you in that and genuinely celebrates with you. Hey, that's great. That's really great. You know, nice work. All right. How does that feel to be joined in our happiness? I have a, a couple of friends uh, from uh, California, and the, the three of us, 
these two guys, the three of us uh, all used to hang out together uh, in Berkeley when we, we were all living there. And um, both of them are monks now at a Bayagiri monastery, all about the same age. And I'm so happy for them. Every time, I, every time I think of them, I just feel so happy. It's not an easy life. It's not an easy life. Uh, I, I feel so much uh, appreciation that they're doing something that's meaningful, that they feel deeply connected with. So when, when we have this quality of appreciative joy, uh, it makes our lives richer. So again, where are we coming from? When we relate, when we speak, when we listen, can we be open to uh, the goodness in others' lives and uh, really connect with that rather than shutting down or closing off? So the last of these qualities, upeka, equanimity, is a, a kind of balance that comes from wisdom. It's a perspective, having perspective on things, not being able, not getting too caught up in the day-to-day -day changes, because we understand the ebb and flow of life. Equanimity is talked about as a as a taste of nibbana, a taste of peace. This quality of uh, the balance in the heart, that when we're not driven by reactivity, when we're not shooting that second arrow or that third arrow, not being pulled around or dragged around by our habits. So when we're going about our life, when we're stuck in traffic or waiting in line, rather than getting impatient, can there be relaxation, a sense of balance? Or when someone speaks to us harshly or unwisely, not getting sucked in, fighting back, but having that sense of balance. Wow, sounds like you're really upset. You know, leaving it with them rather than taking it on. So there's a story in the suttas where someone comes to the Buddha and begins hurling insults and blame on him. And when he's finished, the Buddha asks him and says, let me ask you a question. If someone comes to your house and they offer you a gift and you refuse the gift, who's left with the gift? And the man says, well, the person who offers the gift. He says, just even so, I leave these words with you. Do not take on that energy to be able to stay balanced. So what would it be like if our, our relationships, our words, our listening were infused with these qualities? How much extra effort does it actually take? A kind word, a little bit of patience when listening. And what would our lives be like without these qualities, without kindness or compassion or joy? What would the world be like? It would be a pretty dreary place. So this chant that we're doing in the morning offers a vision of what's possible, how we can craft our mind and heart to abide 
pervading the whole world with the heart imbued with kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, this vast quality of kindness, free from hatred and ill will. So we can learn to be mindful of our intention, of where we're coming from. To pause and ask, where am I coming from? To check, what's this rooted in? And to track that in conversation to see how much of our speaking is motivated by wanting to be seen in a certain way or wanting to insert our comment or our view, or wanting to make an impression or a certain, prop up a certain kind of self-image. Or how much are we speaking just by habit without really being conscious at all? Or on social media, our online voice, where are we coming from? What are the intentions that are motivating us to post? And most fundamentally, the inner voice, the inner dialogue that's happening. How are we speaking to ourselves? Are we harsh with ourselves? Are we coming from a kind place? Are we using right speech with our own mind? Can we begin to cultivate these intentions with our own thoughts in our, in our mind? Where are we coming from? learning to develop the capacity for renunciation, for letting go. Can we let go of the need to be right, to win, and instead take uh, understanding and connection as our goal? So in addition to being aware of our intention and just uh, inquiring, where am I coming from? We can also ask a second question, and that's, how does this feel? How does this feel? We can start to develop a sensitivity to the different somatic sense, the, the felt sense of these intentions what kindness feels like, this bright, open, warm energy, what compassion feels like, this strong, steady care, what joy feels like, this uh, lifted, uh, buoyant, uh, joyful quality. And what the other intentions that color our speech and our listening feel like the sort of the blur of, of greed or craving or the bristliness of resentment or sharp, sharp words, the kind of the foggy dullness of confusion or habit. And the more we start to track how, how these intentions feel, the more we develop the capacity, not so much to be thinking about where we're coming from, but to really feel it and to have an intuitive sense of how to craft the heart, 
how to cultivate the kinds of intentions that lead to well-being for ourselves and others, and how to let go of the intentions that go in the opposite direction. The more we cultivate these uh, qualities of heart, they become a vehicle for our own freedom. They free the heart from the entanglements of ill will, fear, resentment, of cruelty or anger, hostility, of greed and envy or jealousy, from reactivity and indifference. So where are we coming from? And how does this feel, using these questions as a practice to investigate our intention? I want to end with a quote from the Buddha. He said, this is how you should train yourselves, to liberate the mind through loving kindness. Cultivate kindness, follow it, practice it, and develop it. Let kindness be your guide, your vehicle. Steady yourself with kindness until it is consolidated and thoroughly practiced, a ground and a basis for all things. This is how you should train yourself. So let's just sit together for a moment. Irrigators channel water. Fletchers straighten arrows. Carpenters fashion wood. The wise train themselves. Thank you so much for your kind attention. I hope it's useful. So it's a little bit after eight. Uh, why don't we take a uh, half an hour for walking or movement with awareness and meet back here at 8.35 for a short sitting uh, with some beautiful chanting. So, um, could we have a volunteer to ring, ring the bell uh, at 8.25, 10 minutes before? Great. Thanks, Jack.